The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show today. So glad you could be present with me for a little while as uh, we're out there spinning in the cosmos of the Internet. Maybe you're joining me live. Maybe you're checking out the podcast on demand on your schedule. However, you're joining me. I love it. Thanks for checking out the conversation today. So today, the conversation may be a little bit uncomfortable, but but that's okay. You know, sometimes we need a little discomfort to grow. Right now, America is facing a national health crisis. And this is not just the pandemic that we're currently dealing with. That's the most obvious one. Um, while our response might be to put our heads in the sand and pray we don't get sick, which honestly is how I've been feeling over the past few months, you know, we have to talk about these issues in addition to the pandemic that we're having the current health issues that are facing us right now the only way to solve them is to bring them to the light and i've been spending some time with a new book right now it's called pain uncomfortable conversations about the public's health by dr michael stein and dr sandro galia and they're presenting these issues in a really easy to understand way so i think the next time i have a dinner party i'm going to break this out I don't know. Maybe, maybe I will. That would actually be a good idea, you know, to get people to start talking. This is really an interesting book because it's modeled after the idea of Benjamin Franklin's Junto Club, where groups of neighbors and friends would talk about the topics of the day. The book is laid out in 60 plus short essays that generate questions and stimulate conversations about health. Dr. Michael Stein is joining me today to talk about this. He is professor and chair of health, law, policy, and management of the School of Public Health at Boston University. He's also a primary care doctor and a leader in general medicine and substance use research and policy for two decades. So he knows what he's talking about and he's done the research. So welcome, Dr. Stein, to the show. I'm really glad you could join me for this conversation. I am delighted to be here. Well, I was curious as I started reading this because, first of all, I had never heard of the idea of Benjamin Franklin's club. And was I pronouncing it correctly? Is it Junto Club or Hunto Club? I, I think the Junto Club. The Juntu Club. Okay. It's such a great idea. I mean, I can really imagine people, you know, back at that time gathering together either at someone's house or, you know, in the local tavern or something like that and discussing the issues of the day. I mean, what was your motivation in presenting the book in this way? Yeah, we thought that uh, small group conversations is how we speak and have serious conversations often. And uh, I believe that it's an opportunity to talk about difficult subjects. And I'm an optimist and believe that people can talk about serious and complex things if given a little bit of a start. So we wrote short essays that really we consider them hors d'oeuvres for your dinner. So they're an hors d'oeuvre about these subjects that allow you to say, hmm, maybe I want to go on and have a main course as well around a particular subject. And we have a broad array of subjects so that people can go through the book and find the few that are interesting and uh, start 
off talking to their families, friends, neighbors, in whatever places they meet. So have you done the dinner party test? I'm just curious with yes, some of these topics. Party. Yes, the dinner party test, we started this, which is um, you say to a small group of people, uh, what do you, what does it mean to you to be healthy? How, how do we, how do we, how should we think about health? Tell us what health is. How do we make Americans healthier? And inevitably what you find is that people in a very short amount of time start talking about their medical visits and their doctors and their recent hospitalizations and their conditions and their illnesses. And we think that that's a very limited view of what health is. In fact, by the time you're going to see a doctor, and I am a doctor, so I can uh, be critical here, by the time you go to see a doctor, things are often late in the game. And so when we talk about health in this book, we're hoping to expand the conversation to talk about not just the health of an individual or your health, but sort of the health of a population. What does it mean for Americans to be healthier? And so what we think that that means is that it's a really about the conditions that underlie and generate health in the United States. And those are some big topics, right? Those are things that we uh, may not think about each and every one of them individually for ourselves, but when we think about the general health of Americans, and we can talk about this, how it played out through COVID, for instance, we think about things like housing, we think about things like income, we know that low income is a very bad thing for health. We think about gender inequities. We think about things we hold in common like air and water and what happens when they get polluted. We think about uh, segregation and what that means for health. These are very big, complex issues, which is why we call the book Uncomfortable. They have to start in a certain place, though, and, and the book allows you to start them off with a, a fact or two that get you going. Well, let's kind of start it off just like you had mentioned, you know, the, the pandemic is, is top of mind, obviously, for all of us. And I thought this was so interesting, um, some of the stats that you shared in the book, because I'm really interested in kind of the comparison and, and contrast with the Spanish flu pandemic that happened in 1918. And I looked back and, and, you know, I looked at the information you shared in the book. The Spanish flu lasted for about two years you know, starting in 1918 and killed between 20 and 50 million people globally. In the U.S., more than 650,000 people died. And that was enough to contribute to the decline in life expectancy. And what was interesting that you shared in the book is that this was the worst decline in American health until 2018, when there was a study the National Center for Health Statistics reported the third consecutive decline in life expectancy in the U.S. So, I mean, we've already been on a decline, right, since before yeah. the pandemic. You know, things have – this just kind of amplified everything and just brought it, you know, right smack in everybody's face. So I, I just thought that was so interesting that we were already in big trouble. I mean, that that's, was pretty obvious, I'm sure, to a lot of people. Before this pandemic hit, we've been getting pro progressively sicker, but that's got to be contributing to the high death rate that we're experiencing now with COVID. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what was happening, we've, we've forgotten about the fact that right before COVID, we were in the middle of a burgeoning opioid epidemic. It's almost forgotten. It 
never appears on the news, right? Three years ago, it was in many governors' State of the Union talks about overdose deaths and the epidemic we had of overdose deaths in America. And it was the overdose deaths that we had that were primarily opioids, but also other drugs, including alcohol, that was driving down American life expectancy for three years in a row, which is the first time it had happened since the flu epidemic 100 years before. And life expectancy, I think of as really sort of a, an indicator of population health, right? What, 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 what more is there about a population than you'd like to see everybody in a, on an average basis living longer? And that had happened uh, in an increasing way, living longer um, for decades and decades until really we were deep into the opioid crisis. Now, let me just say, when I say we were living longer and longer, that has to come with a big asterisk, right? And the asterisk is, well, you know, when you look at the top of the income scale, those were the folks who are really driving the increase in life expectancy over the past several decades. When you look at the bottom of the income scale, the bottom 20% of Americans, they are dragging and down the life expectancy, not for their own reasons, but because of um, a variety of societal reasons. That That is, if you're, if you're a white woman in, with good wealth living in Minnesota and you're a white baby born in Minnesota right now and um, growing up to be a, a white woman who lives in Minnesota, your life expectancy is about 15 years longer than a black woman growing up in Alabama born today. So that's shocking. That is just shocking. And even that speaks to even within our life expectancy measures, there are these great differences across parts of our population, sometimes driven by geography, often driven by race and income, which are really the great cleavage planes in our society that we've seen play out again through COVID. Right, right. And it's just doesn't seem to be getting any better. We keep getting promised that we're going to have health care for all and, you know, we're all going to be able to go into see doctors with, with no issue. And we still haven't haven't seen that happen. I mean, it, with all of the issues you raise in the book, um, you say that it's explicitly political, but in no way partisan. And I, and I really like that. You know, I mean, these are issues that we should all be able to get behind no matter what side of the aisle we're on, right? Well, I do think that, um, that we should be able to have these conversations um, around issues in an objective way using objective facts about um, certain indicators of what we mean by health. So, for instance, life expectancy is really something that we can put our numbers on and put our finger on and say what that means. For infant mortality, we can understand and measure what that means. Now, that's not to say that, that, that at the moment in our very divided society that we um, don't have differences between the parties right now in major issues and how to resolve what I think are major problems in public health. And I really think that this election is an important election and uh, we can get into some partisan issues because I do think that there are grave differences between the parties at the moment that um, have to do and will drive health over the next five years. Right. I mean, I just have to be careful with with politics. I really don't want to mention any certain specific person 
people or people, although I'd like to. <laughs> but I mean, I think that there's there's certainly enough to to talk about with these issues that everybody should be able to get behind. I mean, we all want to be healthy. We all love our families and we want you know everyone that we are in contact with, our friends, our family to live long, healthy lives and not worry about being bankrupted by medical bills. I mean, I think that's something that we should all be able to to get behind it. And unfortunately, it, it doesn't seem to be. Now, you say in the book, you know, health and health care are two very different things. And I thought that was interesting. So could you clarify that just a little bit? What, sure. what you think Let's between health and health care? Yeah, they, they do start to slide together. We use them synonymously, right? So here, here's a metaphor that may be helpful to people. Uh, soccer has gotten bigger enough in the United States that most people uh, know about or have kids who play soccer, right? So I think of um, a soccer team and there are there is one goalie and there are 10 players on the field. And we healthcare I think of as the goalie, which means that um, the, this person is our last this 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 woman, let's call her a woman goalkeeper, is our last line of defense when things get really bad, when things are attacking us and get really bad. And that we want a great goalie and we want to be protected when the other team is attacking, when illness is attacking us. But the, meanwhile, there's 10 other players and most of the game is taking place on the field where those 10 players sit. And the goal of soccer is really to keep the ball away from the goalie, right? Never see a doctor. That should be our goal. Never, never have a shot on our goal. We don't want that. So public health or what I call health is really about the 10 players on the field that protect us from ever having to use health care. Now, some of us, of course, at certain points in our lives are gonna need a hospitalization and we want a great goalie when we need a doctor. But I think that there are important elements to health or what we would call preventive health or what I would call public health that are important in preventing us from having to see that doctor. And an example of that in the COVID case is simply this, right? I mean, we have people who uh, will, if we get COVID that's severe enough, take care of us in the hospital. And we've worried about and we've seen the overwhelming of hospitals. Now, that wouldn't have happened, right? If we had had the 10 other players on the field who were protecting us from ever getting COVID and ever moving into the hospital. And that's when we talk about the disinvestment or the problem with public health in America that has uh, made, been made worse over the past uh, several years, we see the soccer analogy played out, right? We don't have public health. We didn't prevent COVID from spreading. And therefore, we need our goalkeepers left and right because there are so many people entering the healthcare system. So there's health on the left hand and there's healthcare on the right hand. The goalkeeper of health care on the right hand really is something we do not want to use unless we absolutely have to. So how do we stay healthy is the question we need to ask ourselves. Right. I mean, that's a that's a great analogy. <laughs> I, I like that. It, it makes it easy to understand. I'm talking to Dr. Michael Stein about his book, Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. It's available now, uh, Amazon or your local bookstore. Definitely pick this up. Uh, before you have your next dinner party or gathering. I don't know when we'll ever be able to have a gathering anytime soon, maybe a Zoom call, and just start talking about 
these issues because it is really, really important. And and you bring up such a great point of, you know, with the goalkeeper, like we don't want to get to that point, right? So the object is to stay as, as healthy as possible without having to go into the hospital, right? So I'll leave, I'll bring it kind of to, to a personal perspective on what I worry about. You know, my number one concern about healthcare, I mean, I believe it's my right as a citizen of this country to have access to healthcare, right? I mean, it should, it should be free, a lot of it, or at the very least affordable, you know, and we lag behind our peer countries in access to healthcare, you know, behind France and Norway and in Germany. I mean, we have lower life expect expectancy and higher mortality than a lot of these other countries. And I just, it, it makes me crazy. Like, why, you know, why are we still a, like a for-profit healthcare system? You know, why do I have to pay $200 just to see a doctor for a regular checkup? I mean, I have right now what's called quote, catastrophic healthcare. Okay. I have to reach a $5,000 deductible before my insurance covers anything. So it's great if I get hit by a bus. Okay. That's fine. But who really uses $5,000 worth of healthcare in a year? You know, I don't. So in in a sense, I mean, I'm just paying for my own doctor's doctor visits when I have to go. And and that's it's just not right. So I know I, have I, pro many <laughs> I probably threw that. a lot out there. Absolutely. I, in utter agreement with you. I mean, Warren Buffett, our great invest, investor, the capitalist of America, says that healthcare costs are the tapeworm of America, that it's eating us from the inside and will in the end destroy our economy. When you think about every automobile that you buy, about $2,000 of that automobile is going, to, is going uh, around healthcare costs. We are absolutely overpriced in this country, which is the primary driver of healthcare catastrophes in America, which is leading to bankruptcies and evictions following hospitalizations. We are, we have a deep healthcare problem. Now, this is a standard partisan issue, right? There is a party that wanted to and pushed through the Affordable Care Act 10 years ago that has demonstrated wide, wide acceptability um, and wide usefulness in protecting many parts of society. Right now, uh, one party has been uh, bolstering that, one party is trying to destroy that for the past 10 years and continues to this day with no replacement. We still, and, and on the citizen level, of course, during these times, many states have wanted to expand into Obamacare, as we call it, because people who live in those states understand the benefits of having health care coverage versus not having health care coverage, particularly low income people. This has come up again and again during the COVID crisis, where we see that health care comes so often for Americans through employment. Well, what happens when you're unemployed? You lose your health care. And then what happens? So we have a system that is utterly failed in terms of covering people, utterly failed in terms of price control. We have an absolute mess. And this is a very complex conversation to have. Uh, we've been having it with great partisan um, acrimony for the past 10 years. It hopefully will get resolved at some point but it is a large part of our economy and uh, causes a lot of upset for everybody. Right. I mean, obviously, the system that we're in right now is a current disaster. But but tell me this. Here's a good conversation point. Why? I mean, it's got to be the messaging, what's being, you know, 
pushed out there to people through the media. Why are people made to be afraid of healthcare that the government provides? Like other countries that, I mean, honestly, I've never been to another country and experienced healthcare there, but I mean, I've talked to people that live in other countries and when they're unemployed, they don't have to worry about if they have to go to a doctor you know, because it, like you said, it's not tied to the job. Why is there still so much distrust on on that concept? I it seems so. Deep, it seems so simple, right? Right. Well, it's not simple, and there are deep historical reasons for that. And and I and I'm not. Uh, I have not said aloud here, nor will I say it out loud necessarily, that it all has to be government-based healthcare. I mean, I do think that there are countries that have lots of private insurances that allow coverage. I think the point of the matter is that we need a system of universal coverage, however we get there in the United States, which has its own political blockades on the way there. But I don't think most people, again, there are some people, but I would say 90% of people in America think that we have a right to health coverage and not being bankrupted when we need care. Again, to swing it back into public health, we also need investment in things that keep us from needing all of that health care. Um, and there are lots of things that we should be th- thinking about in those ways that have, in my view, uh, policies associated with them. That is, it's very hard for individuals to uh, combat forces around them that lead to obesity, for instance. Why is nearly 50% of the American population obese, much higher than any other other uh, country that leads and drives to our healthcare costs. So that's an interesting public health question that precedes uh, the seeking healthcare question. Right, right. We definitely have to start talking about that. And and I'm starting to hear people bring that up. You know, you mentioned in the book, data shows that we're spending way too much money on inefficient and expensive health services instead of investing in, in educating people, you know, and letting them know better foods to eat and, and making that available. You know, then you go down that whole uh, road of, you know, food access inequality, you know, people that don't have access to to better food, you know, and education on preventative care policies. I mean, for myself, I try to educate myself as best I can of how to stay healthy. You know, I, I don't smoke. I mean, I used to, I'll admit it, you know, and I, I quit smoking. You know, I've tried to raise my level of health because I'm terrified of having to go into the healthcare system in, in this country. I want to stay as healthy as I can, but so many people are not, are not, I guess, able to do that or not in a position to, to do that. Let's, let's stick with you, Diane. And there are a couple of things to say about this. First of all, congratulations for quitting smoking. That's excellent. It is, <laughs> it is one of the great public health efforts and successes of the second half of the 20th century. That is, it's not a healthcare issue, right? It, it, it precedes healthcare. We try to stay away from healthcare by when we stop smoking because smoking leads to cancers and vascular disease. So when you stop smoking, you prevent using the healthcare system. Now, how did that happen? How did public health make you stop smoking? Well, obviously everybody has an individual story. So it's not just how did it make you stop smoking? How did it make um, 30 or 40% of the population stop smoking, right? In the 1950s, 40 or 50% of the population of America smoked cigarettes. Now it's about 
So there's a, been a 35% drop. That didn't happen because individual people said this or that or this or that. It, it came about because of policies. It came about because of taxation of cigarettes that made cigarettes so expensive that it drove some people away. It came out of policies about informing people about what it meant to smoke and what the risks are. It came out of policies that said, hey, there are actually medications out there that can help you quit smoking. Why don't you try to use some of those, those medications? So it was a multi-pronged um, effort over decades that included a cultural change, but that was driven by policies that made it easier for you and other individuals who were smokers to stop smoking. So if there's a message here that you keep hearing me say, it's that public health policies are important because they set the conditions by which we individually can make our decisions. Right. That's that's so true. And, you know, as I'm thinking about that, what you're what you're saying, really what drove me there was there were several things that drove me to quit you know just wanting to get healthier noticing that i was having trouble breathing um you know and just feeling disgusting but also the policies that you mentioned you know you couldn't smoke anywhere you couldn't smoke in restaurants or you know driving people outside not letting them stay in inside to smoke and those kind of things i mean those were really a big factor so re we really need to look at the laws that we're passing, who we're, who we're voting for and what they stand for, what policies that they're going to push forward to, to help us with, get healthier. That's with every issue, Diane. That's with every issue, and that's what the book is about. It's with thinking about obesity in America. What policies can we have that shape our world? It's about pollution. What policies can we have to shape our world? How do we think about gasoline? How do we think about automobiles that contribute? How do we think about meat eating and the agricultural industry that contribute? Those are all things that contribute to pollution. How do we think about COVID? COVID is a political issue because it requires policies as well as a public health infrastructure that's promoting those policies and implementing those policies that will allow us to overcome uh, COVID. And when you don't have policies or when you have policies that confuse you, confusion kills. And that's what we've seen from the first six months of COVID is that confusion kills because our policies are not solid and clear and informed consistently. No, absolutely right. I want to continue on, on that note about policies because I think that's so important. We're just going to take a short break in a few seconds. And if you happen to be listening live and you'd like to join the conversation and talk to Dr. Stein, 816-251-3555 is the number. I'm Diane Ray. Thanks for joining me for this important and maybe a little uncomfortable conversation about our public health. We'll be right back. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. 
Welcome back. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray talking with Dr. Michael Stein about his book, Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. And these are conversations that we really need to have. And I'm thinking no matter what kind of information bubble that you may be in, the left or the right, these issues cross over all divides. And this is something that we all need to move forward as one, you know, as one healthy species on this planet. This is all important stuff. So right before the break, though, we were talking about the importance of, you know, policies and pushing through healthcare. And you mentioned how, you know, over the years, smoking went from like in the in the 50s and 60s, tons of people smoked. I, re- I do remember smoking on airplanes, you know, people smoking on airplanes. Now, you know, you're a pariah if you smoke anywhere, you're thrown out of restaurants. But it took time for that message to really take hold and for people to really start quitting. And the reason that that did happen was because of those policies put in place. And just, just to touch on that a, a little bit with what we're experiencing now with the pandemic and we just have to talk about the whole mask issue and how that's been politicized and how it's it's so ridiculous that you know efforts that are being made to keep us healthy have become politicized and and why does it seem that i mean is it just the ugly americans that we we fight you know oh don't tell me what to do i'm not going to wear a mask you're stepping on my freedom it it's crazy right I mean, we're not trying to take away people's freedom by wearing a mask. We're trying to keep people healthy. I mean, just where where do you sit on that? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think of the I think of how how people view the world, and the question is, do they view the world as a world of me, or do they view the world as a world of us? And if you view the world solely as a world of me, where everybody's alone doing their own thing, making making decisions only for themselves, thinking about nobody else, then that's a particular perspective. If you think about the world as, a, as one of us, um, then, then in, in this case where there's, you know, right now very clear evidence, which there wasn't obviously in the very beginning of the epidemic, but there is certainly grown over these last six months and today without a doubt that masks are a protective device. And it's not only that masks are a protective device, um, it's that they're really a sort of sign of respect to me. And, um, they're a sign that, um, that, that we're in it together and that they're a sign for any individual wearing it, that I take this seriously, that it's not just that I'm not just doing masks, but I'm doing all the other things. It's important to try to keep me and my friends and my parents, um, uh, well, and and those things obviously include social distancing and staying away from large gatherings, et cetera. So the mask is the sort of is a symbol of of respect and seriousness about this illness. If you if you're a person who doesn't think of the illness as serious and have no, no respect for others and don't have an us perspective on the world, then you take this American anti-authoritarian view and uh, put everybody at risk and. You know, we've seen from this COVID crisis that that um, you know, uh, COVID uh, COVID can go anywhere, and we and and a virus anywhere is really a virus everywhere when you have a virus that's transmitted without knowing that you're even infected and you're transmitting it. So, uh, the the mask issue seems obvious to me. It, it's politicized. It's um, it's 
it's strangely um, taken off in some places and, and not in others. And we can examine, you know, and I think historians will examine why that is. It wasn't different in 1918 with the flu pandemic either, right? I mean, there were places that used masks and had no social gatherings and there were places that didn't and uh, they had different outcomes. And that's what we're seeing here. Right. Absolutely. I've, you know, I've been so interested in looking back at the 1918 pandemic and kind of looking up, well, how long did that last, you know, and, and how did people deal with it then? And I saw some old, like silent movie footage of around that, that time where it showed people, you know, were wearing masks in, in certain situations, you know, walking around in public and things like that. So I wonder how history will look back on this period of time. It, it's just, it's interesting to, to think about that. You know, if, if I could go in a time machine and, you know, look, look and see a hundred years from now when historians look back on how this whole, this whole thing was handled, it'll be interesting to see what they say. But you, you cover so many, and, and not even just to talk about COVID, I want to bring up some other health issues too that you cover in the book because there's so much, you know, there's, there's so much that we need to talk about and so much that we need to deal with. And you said something really interesting in the book about climate change. And you say that denying climate change is denying health. And I read that, I'm like, oh, yes. I was so glad that you said that. I, I think it's so important. Could you touch a little bit on that? That, you know, that's something that was really top of mind too in in our consciousness and then has kind of, you know, taken a back seat of late in talking about climate change. Yes, exactly. I mean, thank you for saying that. I mean, it seems to me that this global pandemic is is a is a prelude, if not for the next pandemic, uh, which will certainly come within the next ten or twenty years of another virus. I can assure you. Uh, then then this longer century long uh, battle that's going to happen around climate change, and you know we we've already seen the the impacts of climate change all around the world, from mass migrations to species die offs to um, our weather changes here. Um, we know that we have heat problems here, and those heat problems have clearly changed uh, health patterns in the United States in terms of everything from um, uh, premature births to asthma. We've seen heat and water problems here change the spectrum of infectious diseases as uh, mosquito-borne illnesses uh, move around the, the world. So, I mean, there are direct health effects right now from climate change, and there will only be more. And, and this is one where it's, it's again, going to be that me versus us issue and policies that can drive this, right? We can't, we can't deal with climate change individually. I think it makes us all feel overwhelmed and hopeless. It can only happen through at this point, frankly, a large series of policy things, policies that need to be both uh, international and uh, widespread in their in their complexion, because um, because we're behind the eight ball already with climate change. And again, we've uh, ignored it a, a bit for this year. And uh, until COVID is um, somewhat under control, uh, we're going to ignore it. But it's it's not going away, and it and it presents us with a, another alarming problem that um, that our children are going to have to deal with. 
Right. Like you said, that it, this issue is not going to go away. It's just it's taking a back seat right now as we try to figure out, you know, how to deal with the, the situation that we're in. And I mean, just dealing with this the situation now, there's there's so many other things that are kind of coming to the forefront, you know, that are being exacerbated by this. And mental health is another big thing. I mean, I've seen a lot of people and friends on, on social media, you know, saying, look, my anxiety is out of control. You know, people that are reaching out that have been stuck alone for longer than they're normally used to, you know, and humans were herd animals, right? Where we thrive on, on being social and being around people. And, and this is just exacerbating mental health issues and, you know, homelessness just coming out of mental health issues. It seems like if, if we could find ways to help people and remove some of the stigma, you know, we'd be able to at least put band-aids on some other things too, right? If we can address some mental health issues in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of use two different words or, or think about two different words that I hear a lot um, a, a bit differently. So people use the word empathy and empathy is really, I put on my primary care doctor hat when I talk about empathy, which is uh, how do I feel about this person in front of me and what they're experiencing? And empathy is not really about sort of the larger forces in society. And then there's this word we hear a lot about, which is compassion, which is really about, again, again, that's my public health hat as opposed to my primary care doctor hat. And compassion really is about, you know, again, what are the conditions that cause suffering across a large part of our society? And what can we do? What edifices can we build? What edifices need to be restructured in order to demonstrate our compassion and reduce suffering? So just when you think about COVID again, and you think about, and then I'm going to come to homelessness, which sits at the, at the apex of this. When you think about COVID, um, you know, we're, we're right now facing acute deaths and hospital overloads in parts of the country. And, and as you said, for those who are not immediately in the hospital um, and don't have a loved one immediately ill, there is a sort of general depression from being locked in your house, right? Being locked in your house used to be a symptom of depression, really. And we're anxious all the time. Um, what's going to happen to my friends and family? What's going to happen to my world? Um, so depression and anxiety are only going to get worse. We, we, we need, just as we have a national task force for coronavirus, we need to have a national task force for the mental health consequences of COVID virus, which are going to happen over the next year as COVID um, effects um, persist and lengthen. When you, when you look back at our recession in 2008, right, which was our last big economic shock, I'll just tell you that for every 1% increase in an unemployment that occurred over the time of that recession, there was a 1.6% increase in suicides. And for every 5% increase in unemployment, you would have that, that, that equaled out to about 5,000 extra suicides and 4,000 extra overdoses. So when you think about that's 1%. So now we have an economy that's probably somewhere around 12 to 15% unemployed. And when you multiply those numbers, you see we're gonna have tens of thousands of new 
overdoses and suicides that are going to happen over the next year until our economy straightens out. So the economic impacts of this are going to drive the mental health impacts even alongside and following the immediate health impacts. These are just horrible numbers and, and we really just need to be compassionate about them and think about those numbers um, as we move along. And remember, in America, even before any of this, fewer than one in two people who had major depression sought or got treatment. So again, we don't have great access to mental health care. We don't um, access it when we might actually need it. And we are going to have to be very alert to this as we move um, through the next few years. Now, right. Now, if you want to talk about homelessness, homelessness is its own is its own issue. It's sort of at the apex of this, right? No, definitely. Um, I'd love to to bring that up because I think the mental the health sur- issue is, you know, a huge part of it. Um, yeah, we've got about uh, ten minutes left. I'll just say a quick word about homelessness because homelessness is really, you know, we have a very clear image of it of of its brutal, demoralizing experience for people. But, you know, you think about homelessness and and before the pandemic, that was about 600,000 Americans every day who are chronically homeless, you know, searching for shelter and food and clothing and a place to wash and a place to go to the bathroom. And 600,000 people is not a lot of people in a country of 330 million. So I don't only think of it as homelessness and our picture of homelessness. What I think about are the 10 million. Americans who are just one step away from homeless, right, who are going to go in and out of homeless, who are going to be homeless for the next week or two. People don't even like the word homeless anymore. It's um, transiently housed or um, uh, other words. But when you think about renters with very low income, when you think about people without government assistance who are going to lose their jobs, um, when you think about temporary personal financial crises, the numbers of people who are going to experience some form of homelessness or instability around their housing, uh, we're really on the brink of a huge problem of that. And and um, it's going to just encompass large parts of our population. I mean, right now, about one in three homeless people also is a veteran. So these are people who've served the country and um, – and we really, I wish there were ways that we could address homelessness in a in a fuller way because um, it's it's really very demoralizing, I think, for everybody. It really is. And when someone is that far down, you know, when you're at that point, it it's hard to get back up. I mean, even though there are agencies and there there is help for people that that want it. I mean, it's not that easy. You know, if you don't have an address. People can't find you. You know, it's difficult. And then these people just will fall through the cracks. And you're right to point out the instability in housing for people that are just kind of clinging, you know, by a thread and that have lost their jobs. I mean, I know several people that have have lost their jobs due to this pandemic and are really worried now that they're going to get their additional benefits cut, that's $600. And it just makes me so angry to hear some politicians say, well, we can't just pay people to sit around. You know, like people are sitting around on that little bit of money that they're getting from unemployment that will barely even make their rent. It, 
it's yeah, it, it just I, ma- it makes me I, crazy. It's cru- it's very cruel and it's a disgrace nationally. And and but I do think it's important for, again that we try not to have a completely let's call it American view of this, right? The American view is this is horrible to see. Get those people into shelters. Okay, well, so we have shelters and we're going to need more shelters, but that's not the issue. The issue is not getting them into shelters only. That's step one. The issue is how do you get them out of shelters and where do they go and how do you sustain them in these places beyond shelters? And those wraparound services and that long-term involvement with these individuals is really what it takes, right? The American view is get it out of sight and it'll go away, but the reality is that people live fragile lives and that they need sustained attention and care. Right. That's so true. You know, you cover so much in the book. I mean, like, like I said earlier in the, in the interview, I don't even know if I'd have enough time to really cover everything that I'd want to bring up in some of these conversations and you call them uncomfortable conversations, which they are a little bit, but you're very comfortable to talk to. So I, I wouldn't say that, that you're uncomfortable. (laughs) Some of the topics may be a little bit, I mean, so much in the book that you touch on, you know, gun control, food scarcity, um, income inequality, but something else that you brought up that I thought was so interesting was the topic of violence as a public health issue. And you say solutions to violence must be rooted in a public health perspective. And I never thought of it like that, but you're right, you know, violence as a public health issue. And, And what did you mean by that? Well, you know, violence is thought of, again, at a snap judgment in terms of guns, right? We have a, we have a gun-dense nation, more guns than any other place by a mile. But that's only part of it, right? I mean, in, in the United States, someone is physically abused by their intimate partner. About 20 Americans are abused by their, phys- by their intimate partner every minute, Every minute, that is, one in three women are going to be victims of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner at some point in their lives. 18,000 people in the U.S. died from homicide, um, often related to an intimate partner. There is great anger. There is great violence, usually as a symptom of a mental health problem that is driving um violence in this country. We are a violent country. We've thought of this chronically as a criminal justice issue. We've locked up lots of people. We've had um, racially uh, motivated lockups. um, And this is a very heavy handed approach that has not lowered uh, either our incarceration rates or our violence rates. So this is again, and it's, it comes across one by one when you're a doctor as an individual problem, but it is a collective problem where people die or carry a physical or mental health burden for the rest of their lives. And we need to understand the context and the conditions that drive all of this violence that we see in the United States. It's a public health issue because of its scope and scale. Right. I mean, when you think about it, that's true. If, you know, if someone goes through a violent episode or you know, traumatic situation, I mean, that is something that can scar people for life and have an impact for years to come. And we can't seem to, to let go of that. You know, we don't want to let go of our guns. 
um, you know, and that that's a whole a whole other you know issue in itself. I mean, I I don't see why there needs to be a, assault rifles available to the public. You know, I understand if you want to own a handgun or something like that. But, you know, again, you go back to policies and that's what we need to look at. And, you know, coming up in an, it's an election year, you know, we have to be looking at candidates and what are their platforms on these issues, right? What are their platforms on health? I mean, when you're looking ahead, when you look at a list of of candidates, you know, just in your own area, where, where are you located? Are you in New York? No, I live in uh, the Boston area. Okay, so you're on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. I mean, so you you know you look also locally. I think people need to educate themselves to look at what's happening in their own cities, right, in their own towns, as a start, and what those policies are. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, th- this is true actually in a number of states, and it's done irregularly. But there are some states that actually have for every piece of legislation that comes up in front of a state legislature, there is a board within the legislature that says, what are the health consequences of this piece of legislation? And that doesn't only involve what's obvious health legislation, right? It could involve a tax decision. It could involve an education decision. It could involve the building of a jail decision. And I think it's reasonable for each of us, particularly around the things that interest us, to say, well, what are the intended and unintended and really unspoken health consequences of any piece of legislation? So that's how I view and I think about candidates. Of course, I have interests outside of health, but my my life is around health. And so um, I, I try to think about are there unspoken health consequences? What does it mean to make, when the legislature will vote this way or that way in terms of health? And not everything has a health consequence, but you, 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 when you look at it and you sort of think out um, over time, you'll be surprised at how, how many pieces of legislation or pieces of policy have a health consequence, even if they're not stated as such. It's been so great to talk with you about this. Like I said, you're not uncomfortable to talk to at all. Uh, and I'm sure if I was in the hospital, I'd want you, I'd want you there. <laughs> I think you would be a good, a good advocate to have. And just as, as we're starting to wrap up here in the last few minutes, where, I mean, where do you think, you know, looking ahead, if we did have that time machine that I wish I had and I could go forward, is there hope? I mean, where where do you see things going, like, say, in, in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I think, again, I turn to policies. And to me, the greatest return on investment, so look at this as a pure business proposition. Let's not even talk about this in any other way but money, which is how Americans like to think about things. If I had my money, where would I put it? I would put it into early childhood development. That's where the money is. It doesn't solve today's problem, but you're asking me to go at 20 years and early childhood development, ages zero to five, dramatic studies looking at all sorts of projects in all sorts of states in this country, randomized experiments where children get services on one side and children don't get services on the other. And 30 years later, those children who got good early childhood development programs had more years of education, 
better physical health, better mental health, better occupational success, lower levels of hypertension and obesity. This is true of policies directed at children. It's direct. It's true of policies directed at their parents through housing projects. Again, I put my money on early childhood development. That's where it has to be. That's a great point. Starting young, getting getting kids, you know, getting kids healthy in the very beginning, establishing healthy habits in schools, getting healthy food in school lunch programs, you know, and then 20 years down the road, seeing the results of that. That's a really great point. So we have just two minutes. Where can people find you? to maybe ask questions if they had some questions about the book. I mean, you put so much research into this. I mean, how long did it take you to write this? I'm just curious. Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I think about these things all the time. I, our, our mission was to write one of these essays a week. So it took us however long, How I don't know how many essays are in the book. It took us that long to write it. And then of course there's the editing and additions, et cetera. So that's about how long, about once a week. There, but <laughs> They're short essays, so I would imagine 50, 60 essays. So what's that, about a year, year and a half? That's how long it took. If you want to find me, so buy the book. I'm always happy to answer questions. Buy it through your independent booksellers. Buy it through Amazon. I have a website uh, called michaelsteinbooks.com, and it has a comment section. People can just go to michaelsteinbooks.com and write to me, ask me questions. I get them all the time through there and happy to interact with anybody. Well, this is so great that you've provided this information for us to start these conversations, maybe in our own Gentoo clubs and just really getting our loved ones and friends and family talking about these really, really important issues. Dr. Michael Stein, the book is Pain, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.